When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. Hello, and welcome to From Queer to Eternity, a podcast exploring what it means to us to be queer. My name's Scott Hancock, and every episode I'll be chatting to a different guest from the LGBTQ community, talking about their lives, experiences, and what queerness means to them, and hopefully discovering just how much we all have in common. Due to the nature of these conversations, certain themes, phrases, or experiences discussed may be upsetting for some of our listeners, but generally we're here to celebrate queerness in all its forms, and have a good time sharing our stories. This episode, I'll be chatting with... House of Pride. Hello, I'm Lou Caulfield. And I'm Alexandra Dessar. Thank you both for joining me on this podcast, this new, fresh podcast, which probably won't be new by the time we get to your episode. But It's uh, an absolute pleasure. You're very fresh in that you're our first duo. We like it. How thrilling. I know. I'm not going to start what, making jokes what already. What a, oh, there she is. She's in already. Good. <laughs> this is going to be quite chaotic, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> and also, you have no idea what you've let yourself in for, which is marvellous. No. <laughs> First of all, not only a duo, but you described yourself there as House of Pride. Would you like yes. to describe House of Pride to our listeners? Yes, of course. Uh, we are a platform for the queer female and non-binary community to grow personally, professionally, and creatively. So that's our... That's, that's, <laughs> why are you laughing at that? That's what we do. No, that is what we do. It's just, um, I have a thing with Alex of, um, of, we know each other very well, and when she goes into business mode, and that was a beautiful business mode. Um, but yeah, that is what we do. That is House of Pride. We How, think, okay, do you want to do the non-business version? Not at all, because we'll be here forever and we have to remember that Scott's allowed to speak at certain yeah, points okay. too. Go ahead, Scott. <laughs> do you have any questions about what House of Pride oh, is? It is after hearing that uh, introduction. Yes, how, do you, how does that platform sort of operate then? So uh, the goal of House of Pride is to create physical spaces where the community can come together, learn, celebrate uh, who they are, uh, again, platform uh, interesting individuals within that community uh, so obviously with with covid the creation of those physical spaces has been somewhat hampered so we i guess put on interesting different projects um and events that the community hasn't really seen before so lou do you want to talk? before uh before the drawbridges went up and <laughs> and we launched house of pride um about a year and a half ago now um we started with very big sort of spectacular physical events to let people know who we are to invite people into there's no um the the title was well thought out house of pride it's all about inclusion and family and creating as alex has said a space for our community um, we did the UK premiere, the first episode of the new series of The L Word, which we uh, hosted at Rio Cinema. We then did a beautiful um, 
event at the Union Chapel called Lover, um, which was centred around Valentine's Day and also the launch of, I'm going to say her name wrong. So, Azure Antoinette. Thank you. Um, <laughs> we have a joke, I know as you're well, and we I always say her name incorrectly. Um, and it was her fourth book and poetry memoir that we launched and we had Shora who sang and we had, we it was just... So essentially a variety show of uh, queerness and uh, performance at, at the Union Chapel, which is a magnificent venue, and just a collection of the most diverse people in the audience. Oh, it was see. wonderful. And all of the events that we do, we partner with um, a charity, with an LGBT plus charity, and raise money for them. We've worked with diversity role models. We've worked with UK Black Pride, Mermaids, AKT, um, and most recently we have worked. We found a way to keep going throughout lockdown, and we worked with Stonewall Housing on a project called Connecting the Letters, um, which you can guess what that was about. <laughs> um, we partnered again with Royal Mail, and we came up with an idea which was. Um, quite a personal um, starting point for both of us in terms of letter writing. And we decided to get on board, I hate the word celebrity, but it started with four... Queer icons. Queer icons. Is that even, is that any better? Icon? I don't know. But they all are. Um, We approached four queer icons to write a love letter to the community. And while we're all shut down um, and not able to come out and hug the people that we want to, we thought that the closest thing to do that is to receive some mail from us. Mm. And if we can't walk through your door, we can at least shove something through it. Um, And we had an amazing response. And the writers were Russell Tovey. Kate Nash. Azure and Trinette again. Beanie Feldstein. Um, We started with four and then we continued to have... Amra Alcardi. And... Oh, that's awful. Who was our sixth? Oh, Rosie Jones. Rosie Jones. Rosie Jones. She was the first one. She was the first one. Yeah, she was the first one. And yeah, we all the the profits that we made from that we gave back to Stonewall Housing. And it was beautiful. And we're hoping to rerun the campaign annually because we sent out over nine thousand letters across the world. So it was it was incredible. And um, hopefully, we're going to do a US focused campaign this year and then uh, keep running it annually and getting more people on board Uh, that's the goal but yeah we did find a way to keep going throughout lockdown um and now we're gearing up to um which is why we're actually in person here together um gearing up to figure out what our next step is we are spending our easter weekend doing a business plan (laughs) yeah That's a very long explanation of how how and what House yeah, of Pride is. Yeah, feel free to cut all of so that. Please, yeah. <laughs> no, it's lovely. And and speaking of letters, I mean, Lou, I, I know firsthand how colourful and glittery oh. yours can be. Absolutely. Which, which is one of the reasons we started this is because, well, unfortunately, um, at this, pretty much at the start of lockdown, my grandfather passed away uh, from COVID. And Lou, uh, as she does, sends incredible letters. And I just... It really touched me, Lou's in particular, but lots of people sent letters and I just thought, well, what what a forgotten art that is. And it's very intrinsic in, in Lou's DNA 
It's, it's letter writing. It's in the blood, Scott. We mm. know this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's um, it, it just felt like a very natural fit and something very comforting at that point. So that was the genesis of, of the idea of connect, connecting the letters. And there's something about it that, for me, is I've come from a family who have always written to each other. As soon as I left home from Wales and, and moved to London, my mum would write to me every week. And I still have all of those letters, which I treasure. Um, and it's, I know that mum's uh, writing and um, the first letter that I ever received was when I was a few days old um, in hospital recovering with mum. And mum's mum wrote to me. Of course it was to mum. But she wrote to me welcoming, welcoming me into the world. And we wrote, and I still have that letter. And so for me, in a, in, at a time where it's all, it's this, it's Zoom, it's, it's look at your phone, it's a text, it's a this. Letters are, have always been, lockdown or not, the way that we sit down. And in my mind, this is my personal opinion, it's you giving your complete time and dedication to somebody. It's not looking at the television. It's not talking on the phone and fielding 600 emails. It's you communicating to somebody and giving them your undivided attention. Mm. And I think my mum taught me that that is one of the most generous gifts that you can give to somebody. And that we always knew that we would do something with letters, um, with House of Pride and lockdown it seemed the best way to do it as a form of reaching out and a, and a form of a reminder that those that felt so isolated, especially within our community, that we were still here, we weren't going anywhere, and that we would see them again soon. You talk about House of Pride bringing interesting individuals together. I have to ask, how did you two meet? We met on set. So we are both actors and we were filming a show for Channel 5 at the start of 2019. Yeah, God, I have to remember now. Yeah, start of 2019, Alex and I spent three months in Liverpool with a lot of women banged up in a prison. <laughs> <laughs> and we were sharing a cell. We were cellmates. We played, uh, yeah, it's become a lovely tagline that is actually true. We, we played best mates in the show and we became best mates. and. We started, there's this, this car conversation as you're being driven to set lots of the time that's become quite infamous now in which Alex was describing to me this idea that she had had for a creative space. And I remember her turning to me and asking if I was all right because I'd gone incredibly silent. And I think she thought she might have offended with me with something that she'd said, which was the polar opposite of what had happened she was describing pretty much word for word an idea that I had had in my head that had transformed as I had transformed, but for 20 years. It had been my idea since I was 17 or 18 to create a safe space for creatives. Um, but then as I grew and as I continued on my journey, transformed into a safe space for the LGBT plus community. And I just looked at this person sitting in this car with me, kind of wanting to say, have you read my diary? <laughs> like, it was that much. And we, during the three months of, that was quite early on in the, in the three months of filming. And as we filmed and became much closer as friends, we talked every day about this idea and saw all of the similarities, realised that we worked incredibly well together, cemented a firm friendship, and then decided to take that to a business partnership. 
one of the lovely things about this podcast is realizing that no matter what people's background, their age, ethnicity, whatever, that people have so much in common and yet very individual lives. So I'm, I'm yes. going to ask a question I ask everyone on this podcast, which is what does the word queer mean to you and how do you personally define? I guess I studied queer theory and, and have studied queer theory for a long time. So I can give you quite an academic answer as to what I think being queer means. Oh, go on. But, I love an academic oh, answer. You're on the point now. Oh, oh yeah. God. That was one that she was hoping you'd skirt by. Yeah. Um, no, I think academically, I understand this. The simplest way to describe it is I understand being queer as non-normative mm. in terms of the society in which we operate. But in how I feel about the uh, label queer or the term queer is that it's it's a bit like a messy, glorious secret party that um that certain people are invited to and that certain people are a part of and and it's it's quite a wonderful umbrella term for the lgbtq plus community that's how i personally feel about it um and then i i define as a lesbian queer to me means relief um and that's my dog crying in the background <laughs> norma, norma also feels relief and would like to make a stand um i think norma wants to relieve herself norma might want to relieve herself actually um i i could i could give definitions of what queer is but every time when queer started to become a name um and a term that we reclaimed as a community as something positive i started for the first time to feel my shoulders go down and go oh Thank God, at last. Yep, I will sit in that. Thank you. I have always described my sexuality um, very much at the beginning um, of not that I would fall in love with a person. And I, I couldn't, I remember trying to explain it to my mum. And I said, mum, I, I, all I can tell you is that somebody could walk through that door now and, and I will be attracted to them and I might fall in love with them. The only thing I can't tell you is whether that person's going to be a man or a woman. Hmm. And then that gradually developed and I now um, find myself attracted to women rather than to men. I have never liked to be bracketed. I have never liked to be labelled. I understand the importance of it for a lot of people. I understand the word relief for a lot of people being able to find something that you can have your badge have your have your claim in a society where you might not feel that you belong queer for me is a more generous term it's a more fluid term it's a more welcoming term it for me is as as alex has said an umbrella but it's the only term that i have felt that i can use for myself where i feel safe and when did you both sort of first realize you fell into the queer bracket I, um, so I now, I said I defined as a lesbian, often I use the term hardcore lesbian. Um, previously, I used the term gold star lesbian. Um, <laughs> before, uh, you know, the term gold star sometimes is met with um, resistance from the community, I think, because the implication is that uh, anyone who, I guess, slept with men beforehand, um, you know, isn't a, a gold star, isn't a quote unquote proper lesbian. Mm. Um, so that that has been met with more resistance. So I use the term hardcore now, but really that uh, that just means I I have never really been attracted to men. I have never dated a man, and I knew that I liked in in hindsight. Now I I definitely knew I liked 
women since I was 11, 12, and then in mm. hindsight since I was probably eight. Mine is a little bit more complicated. I first started to stop, I think, fighting how I felt when I, it's all, for me, it's all about discovering a place where you belong. Mm. And the first time that that happened to me was when I joined a youth theatre back in Wales. And I joined, it sounds strange to say, I joined quite late for a youth theatre. So the youth theatre was open to people who were 11 and above. And I didn't join until I was 17. Mm. And the first time I walked into that tiny little box studio in Welshpool High School, and all of these wonderful people, all of these, we called ourselves the oddballs, these people just turned and looked at me and ran to welcome me. And I was petrified. And I went on my own and I went as that much older. Having, so these people had been establishing friendships and relationships for so long. And I have never, ever been welcomed with such open arms. And the people there, it was, it was not gradual. It was immediate. It was an immediate first 10 minutes that I went, oh, well, I'm home. Hello. <laughs> and the encouragement that I found there to be who I had been resisting. So I would say that from 17, 18, I knew Mm. I knew before, 17 or eight or 18, I accepted. Then I moved to London to study at college, at drama college. And I had my first uh, relationship with a woman. But I also have to honour the fact that I have had a wonderful relationship with a man for 12, 13 years. Mm. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change that relationship. And I am pleased to say that he is still my best friend. That was a hard, us growing together and accepting the development and the journey of me through that relationship to come out the other side of it and him understand and see the growth and see the journey and say, well, of course you are. And still love me is possibly one of the most generous things that anybody has ever done. I'm interested there in that, uh, Lou, you say you, you sort of, realized or it registered with you when you were 17 or 18 so towards the end of secondary school and uh alex you're saying about 11 or even earlier at eight and i i'm fascinated about that period when we're sort of discovering ourselves at school and particularly how much education and information was made available to you and whether you felt you almost had to pull back in a way or conform to the sort of heteronormative environment i think that there was a lot i was very much um i always describe my um education as getting it the, the the way that i played it i got it the wrong way round so i was you know when you're meant to rebel and go a bit loopy mm. and then buckle down and do your a levels and go somewhere decent i i didn't do that i um i was the straight a star student um swat geek uh, head girl, um, all the way through up until the end of GCSEs. And then in the sixth form, I went a bit mad. <laughs> um, and basically, I discovered theatre, <laughs> which was the youth theatre. And it was something that I was doing, or so I thought, to help me with my English, because I intended to go and read English at one of the Red Bricks. 
and it was all paved and it was all very studious and it was all very in a big blinkered box. Um, and then hello youth theatre, hello my oddballs, hello all of the feelings that I had been so hard suppressing, tunnelling themselves out and exploding and breathing for the first time. And I kicked against all traces that I possibly could in, in terms of family, in terms of education, in terms of all of the things that, in terms of the environment that I grew up in, in terms of all of the things that I had felt not allowed or not helped me to be who I was. I kicked back against each of them. Now, I'm, and as a few people listening to this will probably know, I am Welsh from Wales. I am the proudest dragon uh, flag flyer in the world. Um, I'm a very proud patron of Pride Cymru. Um, but where I grew up, and this is not said as a criticism, I didn't have any of the things that uh, we have now growing up. Mm. I didn't have, there was no diva in my tiny little village corner shop there were as far as I was aware or remembered or perhaps allowed to see queer couples queer partnerships queer families so all of these feelings that I were having that I was desperate to go well surely this is normal I had nothing to attach them to I had nothing to be allowed to think that this was acceptable and I had very strong influences from a tiny community, a slightly blinkered community where I grew up, telling me that that was not normal. Mm. And I struggled with that greatly. And in all honesty, it wasn't, like I said, until I found that youth theatre that I realised, hold on a minute, this isn't just me. That might sound very sort of um, simplistic and comic book-like, but it, it's... That was what happened. And I do think that the box that I had put myself in, because I'm like, well, this is what I do, isn't it? I am a studious, hardworking, um, intelligent young woman. I will do this. I will work. I will go to Oxbridge. I will blah, 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 blah. And then I was just like, no. And at the age of 17, um, I, was, I the best way I can describe it is I was Lucy Caulfield. And then I became Lou very, right. very firmly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess for me, because my my journey of discovery was slightly earlier, I did also grow up in a different time uh, and a different place. So I uh, I grew up and, and went to school in London um, and in the noughties. Is that when I... She's yeah, ridiculously the young. I am <laughs> not, not Not anymore, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in a very different time and place and I... I guess I grew up with shows like Ellen. Me and my dad would watch Ellen at the weekends. And there was some queer representation on television and in, in the media, not not wholly. And I certainly didn't see queer couples around either. But I guess it's a testament to the environment in which I grew up that my family as well was uh, incredibly open, is incredibly open and accepting. And even though I also grew up in the Catholic faith, I, I had a firm grasp on who I was quite early on. Uh, there was there was no 
representation in school either or teaching in school about different types of families and different types of relationships and I think that's a no there was not I mean no, God, that wasn't for you no there certainly what that I mean that and was no that's no, a, no no that's a hangover as well I imagine from the Thatcher era and certain policies that were put in place but now um I w- was married to a uh, a headmistress for um and and with a headmistress for for a long time um 10 years or so and now she again is my best friend um but the types of uh, the types of books that are available to children and the teaching that they receive oh, and it's just huge. extraordinary yeah. and i'm aware that you know that's not the same in all parts of the country and not all parts of the world certainly but to see you know schools that i might have gone to teach that is mm. um is incredible it's interesting isn't it just how how much difference a decade or two can make yeah. in terms of visibility and and you know Lou, i'm sure you're the same as me didn't even have the internet growing up really oh to god no google it, this it, stuff it, we talk we alex and i have talked a lot of because there is you know a decade between us um what al had growing up still wasn't well, it's it's the development, isn't it? It still wasn't as available now. But some of the things that I mean, I didn't have Alan. I didn't have, um, mm. and like you say, I didn't have the internet. I didn't have my phone. I didn't have things that I could type in and research and go, "Am I? Is this? Would this? Are they? Hello, anyone? <laughs> Hello." Um, yeah, and it was. If you're told enough times, well, it's it's the it's a kind of a a drip drip technique isn't it if you're told enough times by a community or by a person or by an environment that no this is not the way sorry you must have got your wires crossed then you're like oh okay well that that can't be right then and there was an awful lot of that for me I wish that I had found don't get me wrong when I found them oh they are still um I a shout out to a wonderful wonderful woman called Amy Roselle Martin who I met at youth theatre and just took me under her wing and was like, are you love? <laughs> um, and who is still one of my best friends to this day. And we went off and ran around and did things like created a theatre company together. And just, she was the most, she has always seen me. She has always seen me. And she saw me on that day that I walked through into Welsh Ball High School Drama School. And it was the first time, the power, the impact of that was it was the first time I was seen. It was the first time I was seen and I didn't realise it. You know, as you're talking, some things just come to my mind um, that I wanted to share because it's not a thought I've ever had before about how my ethnicity and my um, racial background connects to my queerness. And I do a lot of talking about this anyway, but this is the first time I've thought this, that I wonder if there is um, a sense that because I was, I was in a, I, I grew up in a, you know, a, a conservative borough of London as well and, and went to a majority white school. I was already different. I yeah. was, I yeah, was yeah. already different. And the people who I, um, who I was surrounded by, there was, there was not really, you know, the option to date or go out with someone who my family, I guess, quote unquote, expected me to, if there was any sort yeah. of expectation, mm. um, because the majority of people around me were white. So it was already going to be a difference. And I wonder if this, the, the knowledge that I was different already helped me embrace my queerness earlier on. Yeah. Maybe. Because it kind of broke me out of that expectation almost. 
This will sound, and I'm not in any way trying to at all compare or put on a level your ethnicity sure. with discovering theatre, but it was mm. a, the, yeah. there's something there because when I found that link into when I it was oh she's different now she's yeah. with that lot. I, it was more. There was more freedom. There was more freedom, was more freedom yeah. to go. Oh, okay. Yes, I can be. And I guess that's well, you know we're talking about difference, and we're on a queer podcast. So I don't think that's a coincidence. I think you know maybe at the start, Scott, when you said, "What does queer mean to you?" Maybe it is just that difference and the freedom that comes from accepting that difference. Mm. Yeah, it goes back to what I the word I used, which is relief. All of the most influential and transformative parts of my life and my queer journey, they have been moments of utter relief. I'm curious as well, you, you talk about the relief of walking to this youth theatre, which I imagine is, is quite theatrical and, and just embracing, literally. But do you both remember the first time you met another openly queer person? No, I'm sure it, she immediately when you asked that, I wanted to firmly come back with, yes, yeah. Scott! Here, but I think it was probably. Do you know what the, what the saddest thing is? I probably met quite a lot of. No, I say a lot. I probably met queer people. I probably met queer couples in the lovely village that I grew up in in Wales. I just didn't know, mm. which says a lot in itself. But the first time it happened, where I was like, "Wow, okay, you are different." Uh, was when I started to meet people through the th- through the theatre, but there were the I think back now with a a forty two year old woman head on rather than a um, pre teenage head, and I think back to the people that lived around me, and I realise who the queer people were. They just didn't, couldn't, wouldn't, whatever reasons. That's their reasons. Promote it or shout it or not that you should Mm. but there's a difference between not shouting it and hiding it and I do feel that a lot of the presences that I later realized were queer presences were hidden where I grew up. I I think it's probably similar for me I wanted to come back and say yes absolutely it's 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 him it's them it's it, it it was her but no I think the there are people who presented as more queer um growing up at school uh that didn't come out until later or haven't come out at all or you know aren't queer um but certainly a few people that spring to mind didn't come out until later so i didn't openly meet them and um you know connect on on that level openly the first time i was able to talk about being lgbt with another person who was lgbt was um someone I actively sought out. So my mum's, one of my mum's friends, who's um, a a British, South Asian um, performance artist, she grew up with him and his sister, you know, from primary school. And they've always kind of, that family has always kind of been in my life growing up. And he was openly gay, is openly gay we were going to the Tate one day um, and I asked him to meet up a bit earlier. So him, my mum and me, and I asked him to meet up a bit earlier and he thought, oh, okay. And um, he, he was confused. He didn't know what it, 
really why I had asked, but he he didn't push. And then I told him that I I think I'm gay, and um, he 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 was stunned. But that was the first time I'd said it out loud, really, to another to another queer person that I knew, and that was it was their guidance, his guidance, really. It helped me to say it out loud to him, and especially as he was another South Asian person, hmm. really, really helped. Hello, I'm Tom, and I make a podcast where I log in to celebrities' Amazon accounts. It's called... What a brilliant idea for a pod. There's no original pods out there anymore, but this genuinely is. Oh, thanks, Ben Bailey-Smith. Anyway, it's called... This is good, isn't it? It's clever, this podcast. You should do more. Thanks, Kerry Godleyman. It's called... This is such a great idea, by the way. What a great podcast. Shappy Corsander, you're too kind. The podcast is but called... It's biographical. You can get all sorts of information out of people. This is a very good idea. Thank you, Nick Helm. It's called My Mate Bought a Toaster. I'm going to listen to this podcast. Thanks, Alex Horn. Can you tell your friends? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In terms of coming out and actually articulating that, identity to other people how did you go about that did you have a plan of who you needed to tell first I know that you sort of mentioned describing it to your mother in, in terms of it could be anyone I'm attracted to but how, how did you find that process of, of volunteering that information to people now I have a question follow-up question for mm-hmm. Lou which is did did you want to tell family or friends first and which was easier I guess in that same vein because I have a very clear trajectory of who I told when and who I wanted to tell when which I'll go into but you go I'm pondering okay you go all right well I certainly knew it would be easier to tell I certainly felt more comfortable telling my friends first so Mm. actually one of my now uh, very good friends was my form tutor at the time so so was a teacher um, at my school and we got on really well I told her first she was amazing and encouraged me to tell my friends at school and I think I was about 14 at the time and I did and it went well nobody had come out at school at that point I think so I didn't really have I I didn't have anyone else to go to in my environment but uh, that was that was really freeing again that relief that Lou, Lou was talking about so I knew that they'd be fine and I talked to them first and I felt very comfortable um what I was always going to be harder for me was my family um, because as I mentioned, we, I grew up in the Catholic faith, my family are Catholic. And I think that had a huge impact on, uh, me embracing my queerness, um, and, and the timeline in which I did that and feeling that guilt as well, that famous Catholic guilt, mm. as much as my parents are wonderful and open and amazing, there is still this fear deep down because I'm dependent on them at that age how they're going to react and if they react badly what that means for me so I came out to them at 17 and 
I knew I needed to tell them first before the rest of my family. And I, um, I wanted to do it before university, but I was in the process of, you know, looking at universities and I remember going to my, um, the careers person at my school and saying, I have something that, um, <clears throat> mean that I need to tell my parents, which means they might disown me. So, um, so Lou is laughing because she knows my parents, so they would never do that. But that means I'm not laughing at parents disowning their children. Everyone, That's no, not I, I think it's 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 a fear a lot of queer people have had, and, yeah, and absolutely, which is why I'm only laughing now because I know Al's parents and know just how ge- how generous they are. Yeah, and they would they would absolutely never do that. But there is a fear. Um, you're right, Scott, and. I said to the careers counsellor, okay, so if this happens, um, what's my path for university? How can I afford it? Can I still, what's, what are my options? And I also, you know, I went to the school counsellor at, at the time, since, after I came out to that teacher. So since I was about 14, I sort of took the step and asked to go to the school counsellor so I could talk these feelings through. And that interestingly has had an effect on a lot of my straight friends because I was the first person they knew who went to a therapist mm. and um, encouraged, you know, a lot of them to to seek therapy and, and counselling. But yeah, I, t- I told my parents and that was a very, very funny story that I probably shouldn't say on a podcast, say for another time, but I came out during an episode of EastEnders. Which was, uh, <laughs> did you wait for the duft of duft? I absolutely did, Scott. Um, <laughs> she did. I she did. actually did. I did. Not on purpose. It just organically happened. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> you're not a showman at all. Not at all. Um, but the real, the, honestly, the most petrifying um, thing was uh, telling my grandparents mm. and um, that's probably because they were more you know steeped in the catholic faith but also they I grew up with them I spent all of my summer holidays I didn't see my friends at all I would just stay with my with my nan and I spent the you know all of my primary school years essentially being looked after by by my grandpa um, and, and my grandma so they mean a huge amount to me and this idea that I would disappoint them or that they would never speak to me again is just something that I uh, I felt physically sick at the thought of telling them. So I actually very generously, again, this is a testament to my parents, they told their parents. Mm. Um, I was studying abroad in New York and I, I was about 19 and, and they told their parents. After a year or so, I think they were all fine. Um, my nan rang me straight away and Skyped me, in fact, and said, Dad told me, I love you you know, don't, don't be scared. And she's just amazing. When I came back from New York, probably only a a few weeks or a month later, the first thing I did was go straight to my grandparents and and check that they were okay because I hadn't spoken to them about it. And I think there was, um, my grandpa said, uh, I I was with my ex-wife at at the time and my uh, grandpa said, you're going, going to marry this person, right? And I said, um, I don't know, because we've been going out for two years, so I'm not sure. And he said, no, you better marry them. And I was like, okay, right. Um, so that was his his response. As long as I was stable, he was fine. Mm. And then my grandma, I think, was a bit more shocked. Um, you know, uh, loves my um, uh, loves my ex-partner um, and asks about her all the time and um, is, is absolutely fine now. It's this... Um, being accepting and being loved unconditionally i think that that's what it is and you don't for at least that generation i think you don't even need to understand something to still love someone and not be a dick to them no 
I think there's also that thing we overlook where we think those older generations won't have known any queer people themselves. And it, oh, it's yeah. always yeah, surprising is... when you realise, <laughs> actually, they probably have, but of just course. never spoke about it openly because of yeah. society. It's we've, fundamentally We've been here true. for a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we've been here for a while, again. And uh, it's, it, it's also when people say that and make allowances for you know, older people as well, you just kind of think, well, are you telling me that they've, they've lived through every kind of civil rights um, fight mm. in history and not learned anything? You know, these are people who have intimate experiences and and would have been surrounded by things on on the news, which, um, you know, going through things to do with race, uh, civil rights actions to do with race and um, and women's rights. I think with LGBT rights, probably a lot of the fear, I guess, from from people stems from the AIDS crisis, stems mm. from a lot of that rhetoric in, in the 80s and, and early yeah. 90s, and that sort of hangover of, okay, well, does being gay or being queer equate to danger for my child or grandchild? Oh, there's, yeah, huge, for that generation, huge. But yeah. that, it, there's still, I, I struggle in a similar way with Alex as, well, it's for that generation, and I'm like, mm, it's still prejudice. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. And also, I think about each generation, as far as you want to go back, the the people, our people, who were having to live within that time, who mm. didn't have, who's the excuse, the excuse of, well, it's that gen that, that was ir- irrelevant to them. That was their lifespan. That was their lifespan when they were living and trying to embrace who they were. We each have one life. We each have one chance to live it, um, in my belief. And think about how it would have been to try and do that back then in whichever generation you want to talk about. Mm, I'm still amazed that I had a school counsellor. I can't imagine that in uh, yeah, when yeah, I was yeah. growing up. <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh, love. I think you and I grew up in around the same time <laughs> yeah. and place, didn't we? Yeah. Where did you wear was school for you? Oh, I'm a Brummie. You've got a cushion, a Brummie. Yeah, I yeah, forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or boys' school You're as well, so you know we didn't talk about Welsh. feelings, right? But... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh God, oh um, love, I'm sorry. <laughs> but enough about me, Lou. How's your sort of coming out plan, as it were? The best things with me and my people that I describe my family, um, because I have a very, very small blood flat family. Mm. My family growing up throughout my life have been my friends or my family's friends, and talking to my friends about when I thought I was bisexual, when I thought of it, it's the most welcoming and wonderful feeling has been when they, their responses are, and, <laughs> or yes, we know, or okay, would you like a cup of tea? Or lovely, have you put the bins out? So when I was in London and deciding to go back to Wales to have that conversation with my family that was different for all the reasons that I've already described about the community that I grew up in and sitting down and talking to my mother who I knew I had to tell first was not the easiest conversation that I had ever had sadly my mother died a year and yeah about a year and a half ago and the journey that we went on together, I think that's the best way to describe it, from me coming out as bisexual and as bringing home my first girlfriend to eventually where we got to. 
is a testament to both of us, I think. Mm. And when I lost my mum, I would say that she had fully accepted who I was. It took her a while, bless her. It did. There were lots of questions. There were lots, which is understand, and I was more than willing to answer. There was sadly also an awful lot of silence about it with me trying to communicate and it not being received. But we got there. We got mm. there. But it, it, was, it was difficult. And when you were both out and, and sort of more certain about who you were, did you both seek out and sort of embrace the LGBT scene? I mean, Alex, it sounds like going to New York must have been exciting yeah absolutely the first thing i wanted to do was go to heaven are you joking as soon as i came out as soon as i could take someone mm. with me um as soon as i came out to my friends in fact that's when i first started going to first out which was a um apparently lesbian cafe in tottenham court mm. road um so which, where i lived throughout yeah. my time at radock <laughs> which is just around the corner on gower street and cheney street i lived in first out I just would go there, I would learn my lines there, I would go for cups of tea, they knew my order, and I just, that's where I went to feel, when I missed my mum, when I missed home, when I missed Wales, when I'd, when something shit had happened at college, when something brilliant had had at college, the amount of cake I ate in that place to both commiserate (laughs) and celebrate. And I would just sit there on my own, and they would let me, when I was skint, make a cup of tea last four hours, and secretly top me up with with hot water. And so again, when Alex, sorry to go on a a digression, but when Alex and I were talking about the place that we wanted to create, we both started to jump up and down and scream when we went, oh, like first out. And we were both like, that was my favourite place. That was my favourite place. (laughs) Sorry, do continue. No, no. I I mean, you're right. It's amazing and sadly not there anymore. No. Um, But yeah, so I, uh, that, that was the first place I went to and I went by myself and then when i came of age and i was eight, and i was out also out to my parents and i could tell them where where i was um i took my friends to straight friends to heaven and gay and spent my life there uh, twice uh, twice oh, a week every G-A-Y. week G-A-Y. Oh. <laughs> oh i've been there during the pandemic and oh. i it still is incredible it's the glorious place where you it takes you a while to walk across the floor because your feet stick to it. <laughs> Yay! I I love it. I know you do, I and I have an incredible, incredible soft spot for it. One pound fifty acre bombs. Oh, what is there not Lord, to I mean. <laughs> yeah, so I um yeah, I, I I embraced it right away. My friends embraced me and we all um, you know, they they were my wing women and that was the embracing of uh, of my queens right away and you mentioned New York. Um yes, I went to a liberal arts college, Vassar College, that was I'd say like 95% hmm. queer. And this is what I, and when I say queer, I mean in the in the queerest sense of the word. I was one of the only out lesbians on that campus um, because everyone was just very fluid, very open, and it, it was an amazing place to be. Lou, you sounded a little bit less keen somehow. <laughs> no, I don't. As soon as I said it, I was like, "Oh, I'm going to get some hate mail," um, but uh, not at all. Uh, there's just and this is um, 
something that's personal for me. I and I'm not just trying to link it back to House of Pride, but one one of the reasons that I want to create a space that isn't centered around alcohol, mm. that isn't centered around the late night have to wake and wait until the weekend. There is a for me, and this is personal. There is and always will be and should be the place in your on your calendar for the the ringed Thursday and Friday and Saturday night out at GAY. Absolutely, or the equivalent. But what I want is a place where you can go Monday to mm. Sunday, and you can go at three o'clock in the afternoon, or you can go when the dance floor opens in the evening, or you can go for breakfast. I don't want my community or the place that I go to to have to be the place that I go to get pissed. I want to dance as much as everybody else does. I want to go and rip up a dance floor. And trust me, Scott, I can. Come on, you will see it. You will see and experience it. I am always the last person there, usually because I have cleared it because no one wants (laughs) to be near me. Um, But I want the choice. I want the choice to, um, uh, and I say this, very openly i'm four years sober and i now i can happily and easily and strongly be in that nightclub and drink my you know my heineken naught percent or whatever or whatever it might be but for a long time Mm. i couldn't and those spaces then weren't somewhere i could go and i i ended up having nowhere and I think that that can be a very dangerous place for somebody who needs their community to be. And so that's why when I, I say it, and it's all said with a smile, it is all said with a smile. Trust me, as soon as I can get back into G.A.Y., <laughs> I will I will tear up that floor. I will stick my feet to the to the floor and I will I will give you my best Brittany. But it will. I want to be able to have breakfast with you the next morning as well. And a, you say that to all the girls. I say it's my best line. <laughs> I'm not just saying it's Scott. <laughs> um, yeah. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. I, when I was at university, it used to depress me that all the LGBT events were pub crawls. Yeah. And yeah, I'd yeah, sort yeah. of go, can we do a book group? Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think I've said this on another episode, but it was, it was amazing, actually. We got a lot of much quieter gay men <laughs> coming along for a, a book group who wouldn't normally, yeah, come along. When I want them, I want to go out and have those nights. I want to go out and be mad, but I also want to go and have the chance to be with my family and speak to them mm. and be with my family and spend time with them and be with my family in a space that is safe, that I can, I can hear people over the music as well. Mm. I, that's incredibly important to me. And the, the, for a lot of our community, it's very well publicised. Um, alcoholism in the LGBT plus community. I want to be able to make a safe space for my friends where they f- feel they can come in and that won't be an issue for them. Sounds idyllic. <laughs> <laughs> you wait, mate. You wait. I'll it's be coming. there. It's coming. Yeah. It's coming. Oh, God, you will be. Yeah. I'm aware I've kept you both talking for quite a while. So I'll start wrapping things up a little bit. Guys, well, Scott, we have been blabbering. You yeah, haven't been yeah, able to get yeah. which we apologise for. No, no, no. It's lovely. Um, Obviously, you're both actors as well. And I think there's this perception that the media is wonderfully liberal and inclusive. But I'm just intrigued as to what your personal experience of that might have been. Do you find yourself typecast in any way? Do you find yourself towing the line in how you present your queerness? I used to. I used to much more than I do now. Hmm. Alex always says I present a soft butch. 
I mean, I don't really know what I present as. I wear comfortable clothes, glasses and a beanie most of my life. If I can wear pyjamas to be in the outside world, I do. But I, I'm very aware of how I present, of course I am. But I would try and steer away more from that because I was aware of, um, I love my industry, but there is, in my mind, an incredible prejudice still within it. When I, I found myself looking at things to toe the line so much, obviously, if I'm going up for a, um, a straight, femme, strict barrister who has a husband, four children, and I'm not going to go in in my LGBT plus rainbow shirt. Mm. But my point has always been as an act, actor is that we transform. That's our job. Yes. And... I would like to think that if I turned up as me, wearing something neutral, you would see me and my performance rather than just me. And it was a long time before I was very open in the industry about being queer. I think it was pretty fucking obvious. Um, <laughs> Can but... I say, I never realised until Tom Price mentioned it to me. And I thought, what? oh my God, I know. How? <laughs> Scott, I know. I know. Oh, mate. Really? That's quite. Alex is pissing herself now. <laughs> Do you know? I think I just. I've spent my life going, don't presume things about people. Yeah, and that's lovely. And that's wonderful. <laughs> but Lou is queer. <laughs> I know. I know. Looking back at those glittery letters, how yeah, did I not I, see it? Oh, I know. Bless him. Yeah. Um, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, um, actually, in response to that, I was going to ask another question to both of you, which was... Um, oh, God, I look know. at it. Full of questions. You're not the interviewer. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can you think of a queer female or, non, or non-binary a- actor who is portraying a queer female or non-binary character on television? I can think of Rebecca Root. Yeah. And then if we like condense that to um, lesbian. Yeah. No, Alex and I have these conversations. And... I, I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you think of stuff like It's a Sin, which obviously people have been talking about a lot recently, where suddenly you have a lot of gay male actors playing gay male characters. But actually, you know, even, well, 20 years ago with Queer as Folk, that wouldn't have been the case. And it, it's odd how even now a lot of gay lesbian parts are still played by straight actors absolutely and the gay uh and, and the queer lgbt parts that we do see mm. played by um lgbt actors are predominantly gay men yes yeah um so i guess when you're talking about when you're asking me if i've been if if there is a stereotype or um limit to how how much I express my queerness in, I guess, auditions or in the industry full stop. The answer is there is very rarely the opportunity to express um, my my queerness Mm. um, in in a role, um, which is frankly quite horrible. I try and turn every part I play We have a joke. We have a joke (laughs) with this. Like I've... um, recent i'm but this is not a hey look at what i'm doing but i've just landed a lovely tv job and this character is in no way (laughs) her sexuality is not described Mm. in any part of the script she's gay she's gay she's gonna be gay yeah she's gonna i will play her gay (laughs) 
Well, this is it. For a lot of characters on screen, actually, sexuality never comes into it one way or another. So, for all we know, maybe we are seeing a lot more LGB characters. Maybe than, we are, but then... The, but we should be having more but then stories. the point is, how that, do we yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and it's about visibility and, and representation. And, you know, j- just off that question, I think I, I, I get cast in a lot more parts that are South Asian specific mm. right so um you know my ethnicity probably comes more into the more into the stereotyping bracket than my sexuality because also I present as femme so you wouldn't necessarily unlike Lou um presume <laughs> my sexuality she's rolling her eyes um <laughs> that's uh, that's my experience I I try and get it in wherever I can but sadly there's very very little opportunity she especially for women into the audience. I, I do. <laughs> I wear a little a badge. Banner. A little badge. You have a backdrop. I wear a little badge, and if you know, female cast directors always give them a wink. That's that's me. All good. Yeah. yeah. Let you know. Just be careful. <laughs> yeah. Just no, careful I don't do that. that. To clarify, far more professional than that. Not much. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, look at looking back over your life. How long do you think it took for you to be sort of comfortable with your identity, or is it still a work in progress? Do you think? Oh, well, this is a very soppy way to end it, isn't it? I would say that since meeting Alexandra Dessau and everything that has happened since then is possibly the catalyst, standing up with House of Pride um, and being known as the one of those two who are trying to create that queer space. <laughs> you have to be pretty confident with who you are if you're promoting something like that Mm. and I think that nothing for me changed in terms of what I already knew I just stepped into the light a little bit more Mm. and the journey that I have gone on with since I've known Al has been the time that I have felt most present within myself Norma is again crying on any every mic drop moment. It was a beautiful sentiment. I can understand. Yeah, she's just she. She's emotional, Scott. (laughs) She's emotional. Norm, how do you identify? Norm, lesbian. We know that. I don't know if she is a lesbian. You know, we need to send Scott pictures. We send Scott a picture. She presents as a lesbian. I've sent Scott lots of pictures. I am poochie broody at the moment. Oh, but yeah, sorry, Alex. For you as well, your journey. How do you feel in yourself? For a long time, I've been very confident, secure in my identity as a lesbian. Um, that's unflinching since I was, you know, I came out to my friends really at, at 14. Um, it was just, you know, getting through that coming out to family was, was the biggest hurdle, um, was the biggest challenge for me in terms of my queer journey. And once that was done, um, honestly, I felt like I could conquer the world. But in terms of my identity as a whole, of course, that's still a work in progress. I think it is for everyone. Um, I am only now recently actually dealing with my identity as a South Asian woman. That's something that for a long time I had repressed or ignored or hadn't embraced. And only now am I starting to realise the impact that it's had on my life and continues to have on my life and the unique uniqueness and and the difference and the celebration that comes with that so it's uh, i think definitely identity is always a work in progress but um and that's including sexuality and queerness um but i have uh, i've been very 
very firm and strong with um, being a lesbian for a long time. Lovely. And I have to ask, because you're our first duo, is there anything from this podcast listening to each other that surprised you? I think that that might be... (laughs) We're both smiling and I think that this is... We would probably both say the same thing. If I didn't know Alex so well and I was doing this as a duo uh, with somebody that was more of an acquaintance or we'd come on here to have a a podcast discussion about queerness with somebody that I didn't know very well. Um, No is the answer to that simply because I know this little sausage quite well. Mm. I don't know. She might say something completely different (laughs) now. I did not know that you were queer. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> what a way to find out. I know. I'm sorry. So that was, that was a real do you need shocker. To, do, you need a whisk, do you need a whiskey? I think I might. Do you need a whiskey? Um, yeah, no, I, I, again, know Lou very, very well. Um, sorry, yeah, that's sorry. a boring. It we is get, a really boring We get accused of, of finishing each other's sentences and things, so it's just, um, yeah, my, she is my business partner stroke fifth limb so no you are my fifth limb norm you are <laughs> norm's crying again yeah Aww. yeah lovely on that note alex and lou thank you so much for chatting with me it's been an absolute blast scott you are lovely and thanks scott. thank you ever so much for inviting us enormous thanks to lou and alexandra for taking the time out of their house of pride planning to chat with me today You can follow House of Pride on all the usual social media platforms and check out their website, www.houseofpride.co. Don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at queer to eternity and leave us your reviews online. We'll be back next time. Thanks again for listening. podcast revisiting S Club 7's insane TV show. Yeah, I can't imagine anyone's binge watch this, anyone who's not on drugs. <laughs> Thank you for bringing this into my life. Uh, it was honestly <laughs> truly appalling. Guests helped me analyse the show in more detail than anyone ever asked for. It feels weird to me to say the phrase sex object in a show that <laughs> was aimed at six-year-olds. Do you think Do you think this is one of the problems of this show is that seven is too much? It's an S-pod thing from Great Big Owl.